Michael Hewitt was paid a set daily rate for his job working as a supervisor on an offshore oil rig, but he frequently had to work far more than the usual 40-hour work week, only without the benefit of overtime pay. So, Hewitt sued his employer, Helix Energy Solutions, to get the overtime pay that Hewitt argued was owed to him under the Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA. In response, Helix argued that they didn't have to pay overtime to highly compensated employees like Hewitt. But Hewitt claimed that his set daily rate technically wasn't even considered being paid on a salary basis anyway, which again meant that he qualified for overtime. Helix, the employer, ended up winning in district court. Then, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit reversed before the Supreme Court granted certiorari to determine whether a supervisor making over $200,000 a year with a daily rate is entitled to overtime pay, despite an existing regulation carving out an exception for highly paid executives. Without further delay, I give you the opinion of the court in Helix Energy Solutions v. Hewitt. Justice Kagan delivered the opinion of the court. The Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, FLSA, guarantees that covered employees receive overtime pay when they work more than 40 hours a week. But an employee is not covered and so is not entitled to overtime compensation if he works in a bona fide executive, administrative, or professional capacity as those terms are defined by agency regulations. Under the regulations, an employee falls within the bona fide executive exemption only if, among other things, he is paid on a salary basis. Additional regulations elaborate on the salary basis requirement as applied to both lower-income and higher-income employees. The question here is whether a high-earning employee is compensated on a salary basis when his paycheck is based solely on a daily rate, so that he receives a certain amount if he works one day in a week, twice as much for two days, three times as much for three, and so on. We hold that such an employee is not paid on a salary basis, and thus is entitled to overtime pay. Part 1. Section A. Congress enacted the FLSA to eliminate both substandard wages and oppressive working hours. The statute addresses the former concern by guaranteeing a minimum wage. It addresses the latter by requiring time-and-a-half pay for work over 40 hours a week, even for workers whose regular compensation far exceeds the statutory minimum. The overtime provision was designed both to compensate employees for the burden of working extra-long hours and to increase overall employment by incentivizing employers to widen their distribution of available work. Employees, therefore, are not deprived of the benefits of overtime compensation simply because they are well-paid. The FLSA, however, exempts certain categories of workers from its protections, 
including the overtime pay guarantee. The statutory exemption relevant here applies to any employee employed in a bona fide executive, administrative, or professional capacity, as such terms are defined and delimited from time to time by regulations of the Secretary of Labor. Under that provision, the Secretary sets out a standard for determining when an employee is a bona fide executive. If that standard is met, the employee has no right to overtime wages. From as early as 1940, the Secretary's bona fide executive standard has comprised three distinct parts. The first is the salary basis test, the subject matter of this case. The basic idea, for now, greater detail and disputation will follow, is that an employee can be a bona fide executive only if he receives a predetermined and fixed salary, one that does not vary with the precise amount of time he works. The second element is the salary level test. It asks whether that preset salary exceeds a specified amount. And the third is the duties test, which focuses on the nature of the employee's job responsibilities. When all three criteria are met, the employee, because considered a bona fide executive, is excluded from the FLSA's protections. Now, though, add a layer of complexity to that description. The Secretary has implemented the bona fide executive standard through two separate and slightly different rules, one applying to lower-income employees and the other to higher-income ones. The so-called general rule pertains to employees making less than $100,000 in total annual compensation, including not only salary, but also commissions, bonuses, and the like. That rule considers employees to be executives when they are compensated on a salary basis, at a rate of not less than $455 per week, and carry out three listed responsibilities, managing the enterprise, directing other employees, and exercising power to hire and fire. A different rule, the one applicable here, addresses employees making at least $100,000 per year who are labeled highly compensated employees. That rule, usually known as the HCE rule, amends only the duties test while restating the other two. In the HCE rule, the duties test becomes easier to satisfy. An employee must regularly perform just one, not all, of the three responsibilities listed in the general rule. But the salary basis and the salary level tests carry over from the general rule to the HCE rule in identical form. The HCE rule, too, states that an employee can count as an executive only if he receives at least $455 per week paid on a salary basis. Two other regulations give content to the salary basis test at the heart of this case. 
The main salary basis provision set out in two sentences of Section 541.602A states, An employee will be considered to be paid on a salary basis if the employee regularly receives each pay period on a weekly or less frequent basis, a predetermined amount constituting all or part of the employee's compensation, which amount is not subject to reduction because of variations in the quality or quantity of the work performed. Subject to certain exceptions, an exempt employee must receive the full salary for any week in which the employee performs any work without regard to the number of days or hours worked. The rule thus ensures that the employee will get at least part of his compensation through a preset weekly or less frequent salary, not subject to reduction because of exactly how many days he worked. If, as the rule's second sentence drives home, an employee works any part of a week, he must receive his full salary for that week or else he is not paid on a salary basis and cannot qualify as a bona fide executive. Another provision, Section 541.604B, focuses on workers whose compensation is computed on an hourly, a daily, or a shift basis rather than a weekly or less frequent one. That section states that an employer may base an employee's pay on an hourly, daily, or shift rate without violating the salary basis requirement or losing the bona fide executive exemption, so long as two conditions are met. First, the employer must also guarantee the employee at least $455 each week, the minimum salary level, regardless of the number of hours, days, or shifts worked. And second, that promised amount must bear a reasonable relationship to the amount actually earned in a typical week. More specifically, it must be roughly equivalent to the employee's usual earnings at the assigned hourly, daily, or shift rate for the employee's normal scheduled work week. Those conditions create a compensation system functioning much like a true salary, a steady stream of pay which the employer cannot much vary and the employee may thus rely on week after week. From 2014 to 2017, Respondent Michael Hewitt worked for petitioner Helix Energy Solutions Group as a tool pusher on an offshore oil rig. Reporting to the captain, Hewitt oversaw various aspects of the rig's operations and supervised 12 to 14 workers. He typically, but not invariably, worked 12 hours a day, 7 days a week, so 84 hours a week during a 28-day hitch. Then he had 28 days off before reporting back to the vessel. Helix paid Hewitt on a daily rate basis with no overtime compensation. The daily rate ranged over the course of his employment from $963 
to $1,341 per day. His paycheck, issued every two weeks, amounted to his daily rate times the number of days he had worked in the pay period. So if Hewitt had worked only one day, his paycheck would total $963 at the range's low end. But if he had worked all 14 days, his paycheck would come to $13,482. Under that compensation scheme, Helix paid Hewitt over $200,000 annually. Hewitt filed this action under the FLSA to recover overtime pay. Helix asserted in response that Hewitt was exempt from the FLSA because he qualified as a bona fide executive. The dispute on that issue turned solely on whether Hewitt was paid on a salary basis. Hewitt conceded that his employment met the exemption's other requirements, the salary level and duties tests. The district court agreed with Helix's view that Hewitt was compensated on a salary basis and accordingly granted the company summary judgment. The Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, sitting on banc, reversed that judgment deciding that Hewitt was not paid on a salary basis and therefore could claim the FLSA's protections. The 12-judge majority first held that a daily rate employee like Hewitt does not fall within Section 602A of the Secretary's regulations. That section, the court reasoned, covers only employees whose compensation is paid on a weekly or less frequent basis without regard to the number of days or hours worked, the very opposite of a paid-by-the-day employee. Such daily rate workers, the court continued, can qualify as salaried only through the special rule of 604B. But Hewitt's compensation did not satisfy Section 604B's conditions. Indeed, the court noted, Helix does not even purport to have met them. The court thus concluded that Hewitt, although highly paid, was not exempt from the FLSA. Six judges dissented in two opinions. The more expansive dissent argued that Hewitt's compensation satisfied the salary basis test of Section 602A. It further concluded that Section 604B is not applicable to all high-income employees, i.e. those falling within the HCE rule because they earn over $100,000. We granted certiorari, and now affirm. Part 2 The critical question here is whether Hewitt was paid on a salary basis under Section 602A of the Secretary's Regulations. Indeed, the parties have taken all other issues off the table. They agree that Hewitt was exempt from FLSA only if he was a bona fide executive. They agree, as they must, that under the regulations, a high-income employee like Hewitt counts as an executive when, but only when, he is paid on a salary basis. The salary paid is at or above the requisite level 
$455 per week, and he performs at least one listed duty. In denying executive status, Hewitt puts all his chips on that standard's first part. He argues only that he was not paid on a salary basis. Helix then narrows the issue still further. As described above, a worker may be paid on a salary basis under either Section 602A or Section 604B, but Helix acknowledges that Hewitt's compensation did not satisfy Section 604B's conditions. That is because Helix did not guarantee that Hewitt would receive each week an amount above $455, bearing a reasonable relationship to the weekly amount he usually earned. So again, everything turns on whether Helix paid Hewitt on a salary basis as described in Section 602A. If yes, Hewitt was exempt from the FLSA and not entitled to overtime pay. If no, he was covered under the statute and can claim that extra money. The answer is no. Helix did not pay Hewitt on a salary basis as defined in Section 602A. That section applies solely to employees paid by the week or longer. It is not met when an employer pays an employee by the day, as Helix paid Hewitt. Daily rate workers of whatever income level are paid on a salary basis only through the test set out in Section 604B, which, again, Helix's payment scheme did not satisfy. Those conclusions follow from both the text and the structure of the regulations, and Helix's various policy claims cannot justify departing from what the rules say. Section A Consider again Section 602A's text focusing on how it excludes daily rate workers. An employee, the regulation says, is paid on a salary basis if, but only if, he receives the full salary for any week in which he performs any work without regard to the number of days or hours worked. To break that up just a bit, whenever an employee works at all in a week, he must get his full salary for that week. What Section 602A's prior sentence calls the predetermined amount. That amount must be without regard to the number of days or hours worked. Or, as the prior sentence says, it is not subject to reduction because the employee worked less than the full week. Nothing in that description fits a daily rate worker who by definition is paid for each day he works and no others. Suppose such a worker is paid $1,000 each day and usually works seven days a week for a total of $7,000. Now suppose he is ill and works just one day in a week for a total of $1,000. Is that lesser amount a predetermined full salary for the week or is it just one day's pay without the usual seven? Has the amount been paid without regard to the number of days he worked, or precisely with regard to that number? If ordinary language bears ordinary meaning, the answer to those questions is 
the latter. A daily rate worker's weekly pay is always a function of how many days he has labored. It can be calculated only by counting those days once the week is over, not as Section 602A requires, by ignoring that number and paying a predetermined amount. In demanding that an employee receive a fixed amount for a week, no matter how many days he has worked, Section 602A embodies the standard meaning of the word salary. At the time the salary basis test came into effect, just as today, a salary referred to a fixed compensation regularly paid as by the year, quarter, month, or week. Salary was thus often distinguished from wages, which denoted pay for labor at short-stated intervals. As the Court of Appeals put the point, the concept of salary is linked, as a matter of common parlance, to the stability and security of a regular weekly, monthly, or annual pay structure. Take away that kind of paycheck security, and the idea of a salary also dissolves. A worker paid by the day or hour, docked for time he takes off, and uncompensated for time he is not needed, is usually understood as a daily or hourly wage earner, not a salaried employee. So in excluding those workers once again because they do not receive a preset weekly salary, regardless of the number of days worked, the salary basis test just reflects what people ordinarily think being salaried means. Helix primarily responds by invoking Section 602A's statement that an employee to be salaried must receive each pay period on a weekly or less frequent basis, a preset and non-reducible sum. At first glance, that language just confirms everything already shown. An employee must be paid on a weekly or bi-weekly or monthly basis, not on a daily or hourly one. Or said more fully, the basis in that phrase is the unit of time used to calculate pay, and that unit must be a week or less frequent measure. It cannot be a day or other more frequent measure, as it was for Hewitt. But Helix contends that the single word receives converts Section 602A's focus. In saying that an employee must receive a fixed amount on a weekly or less frequent basis, the provision mandates only that he get his paycheck no more often than once a week, which, of course, most employees do. Because Hewitt's paycheck came every two weeks and because that check always contained pay exceeding $455, the salary level, for any week he had worked at all, Helix concludes that Hewitt was paid under Section 602A on a salary basis. But that interpretation of the weekly basis phrase even putting Section 602A's other language to the side, is not the most natural one. As just suggested, a basis of payment typically refers to the unit or method for calculating pay, not the frequency of its distribution. Most simply put, an employee paid on an hourly basis is paid by the hour, 
an employee paid on a daily basis is paid by the day, and the employee paid on a weekly basis is paid by the week, irrespective of when or how often his employer actually doles out the money. The inclusion of the word receives in Section 602A does not change that usual meaning. Suppose a lawyer tells a client that she wishes to receive her pay on an hourly basis. The client would understand that the lawyer is proposing an hourly billable rate, not delivery of a paycheck every hour. Or consider a nurse who says she gets paid on a daily basis. She means that she receives compensation only for the days she works, not that she collects a paycheck every day. So to here, an employee receives compensation on a weekly as opposed to a daily or hourly basis, as Section 602A demands, when he gets paid a weekly rate. The provision's temporal dividing line is not about paycheck frequency. Our reading of Section 602A also tracks how neighboring regulations use the term basis of payment. Over and over in the Secretary's rules, that term means the unit or method used to calculate earnings. So, for example, one provision states that additional compensation may be paid on any basis, for example, flat sum, bonus payment, or straight-time hourly amount. Another provision defines what it means to be paid on a fee basis, differentiating that method from payments based on the number of hours or days worked. Still, another says that for one class of employees, the salary level test may be met by compensation on an hourly basis of not less than $27.63 an hour. And as discussed below, Section 604B refers to earnings computed on an hourly, a daily, or a shift basis, as distinct from amounts paid on a salary basis, regardless of the number of hours, days, or shifts worked. For now, the point is simply that all those regulations use the language of basis in a similar vein to describe the unit used to determine payment. And consistent with that usage, Section 602A's demand that a salaried worker get a preset, fixed amount on a weekly or less frequent basis means that his paycheck reflects how many weeks, not days or hours, he has worked. The weekly basis phrase thus works hand-in-hand hand with the rest of Section 602A. Every part of the provision describes those paid a weekly rate rather than a daily or hourly one. Recall that an employee, to meet the salary basis test, must receive his full salary for any week in which he works at all. That predetermined amount cannot be changed because of the number of days or hours an employee actually labors. The amount must instead be paid without regard to that number. Or said otherwise, the amount must be paid on a weekly basis, again, by the week 
not by the day or hour. All that regulatory language, each phrase adding onto and reinforcing the others, reflects the standard meaning of a salary, which connotes a steady and predictable stream of pay, week after week after week. Put it all together, and a daily rate worker does not qualify under Section 602A as a salaried employee, even if, like Hewitt, his daily rate is high. Section B. The broader regulatory structure, in particular, the role of 604B, confirms our reading of 602A. Recall that Section 604B lays out a second path apart from Section 602A, enabling a compensation scheme to meet the salary basis requirement. And that second route is all about daily, hourly, or shift rates, whereas Section 602A addresses payments on a weekly or less frequent basis. Section 604B concerns payments on an hourly, a daily, or a shift basis. An employee's earnings, Section 604B provides, may be computed on those shorter bases without violating the salary basis requirement, so long as an employer also provides a guarantee of weekly payment approximating what the employee usually earns. Section 604B thus speaks directly to when daily and hourly rates are consistent with the salary basis concept, and by doing so, the provision reinforces the exclusion of those shorter rates from Section 602A's domain. Were Section 602A also to cover daily and hourly rate employees, it would subvert Section 604B's strict conditions on when their pay counts as a salary. By contrast, when Section 602A is limited to weekly rate employees, it works in tandem with Section 604B. The two then offer non-overlapping paths, to satisfy the salary basis requirement, with Section 604B taking over where Section 602A leaves off. Helix's argument to the contrary relies on carting Section 604B off the stage. True enough, Helix says that Section 604B usually provides an alternative route for meeting the salary basis requirement. But that is not so, Helix asserts, when highly compensated employees like Hewitt are involved. Recall that the Secretary's regulations separately prescribe in the General Rule and the HCE Rule how lower and higher income employees satisfy the three-part standard for a bona fide executive status. On Helix's view, the only general rule for lower-income workers has two different avenues. Section 602A and Section 604B for meeting the salary basis test. The HCE rule, Helix argues, 
incorporates only Section 602A, it is independent of Section 604B. And with Section 604B out of the way, Helix does not have to confront, or so it says, the argument above, that it is anomalous to read Section 602A as covering daily rate workers when that is Section 604B's explicit function. But to begin with, Helix could not succeed even if it were right about the relationship between the HCE rule and Section 604B. That is so for two reasons. First, even without support from Section 604B, the plain text of Section 602A excludes daily rate workers like Hewitt for all the reasons given in Part 2A, and Helix of course acknowledges that it must comply with Section 602A to satisfy the HCE rule's salary basis requirement. Second, even on Helix's view of the HCE rule, Section 604B in fact confirms the plain text, weekly rate only, reading of 602A. Helix, after all, agrees that both provisions serve as pathways to meeting the salary basis test when the general rule for lower-income workers is involved. And if that context confirms that Section 602A applies only to weekly-rate employees, then the same must be true in the HCE context, for Section 602A cannot change meanings depending on whether it applies to the general rule or the HCE rule. It applies to both and must mean the same thing in either context. So even supposing that the HCE rule incorporates only Section 602A and not Section 604B, the two provisions still must be read to complement each other. In any event, Helix is wrong that the HCE rule operates independently of Section 604B. The HCE rule refers to the salary basis and salary level requirement in the same way that the general rule does. And as already described, the two provisions giving content to that requirement, explaining when a person is indeed paid on a salary basis, are Section 602A and Section 604B. So both those provisions should apply to both the general and the HCE rule, because both the former serve to define what both the latter identically require. Helix tries to avoid that reasoning by noting that a later version of the HCE rule than the one governing this case cross-references 602A but not 604B. But that version is conceitedly not the rule at issue, which contains cross-references to neither provision, so offers no basis for Helix's distinction, and anyhow, Helix's own arguments belie the import of the added cross-reference. The general rule, in both its earlier and its later versions, also cross-references Section 602A, but not Section 604B. Yet Helix acknowledges that both those provisions apply 
in that lower income context. There is no reason to give different meaning to the same cross-reference scheme in the later HCE rule. The upshot is that Section 604B applies, just as Section 602A does, to the HCE and general rules alike. There is, of course, a difference between the HCE and general rules. It just has nothing to do with the salary basis requirement. As Helix notes, the HCE rule is streamlined as compared to the one for lower-income workers. But the HCE rule's text makes clear what it is streamlined with respect to. Not salary basis, which, as just shown, is described identically for higher and lower income workers, nor salary level, which is set at $455 per week for both groups. Rather, the difference is with respect to workplace duties. As noted above, lower income employees cannot qualify as bona fide executives unless, one, their primary job is management, two, they regularly direct the work of others, and three, they have authority to hire and fire. But higher income employees need regularly perform only one of those responsibilities to so qualify. That more flexible duties standard eases the way to executive status and so to exemption from the FLSA, but the HCE rule's streamlining stops at that point. Again, the rule leaves untouched the salary basis requirement, so incorporates Section 604B as well as Section 602A, and 604B's focus on daily and hourly workers confirms that Section 602A, as its own text shows, pertains only to employees paid by the week or longer. Hewitt was not. Our reading of the relevant regulations as laid out above properly concludes this case. Helix urges us to consider the policy consequences of that reading, labeling them far-reaching and deleterious. In Helix's view, holding that Section 602A's salary basis test never captures daily rate workers, will give windfalls to high earners, disrupt and increase costs of industry operations, and impose significant retroactive liability. But as this court has explained, even the most formidable policy arguments cannot overcome a clear textual directive. And anyway, Helix's appeal to consequences appears something less than formidable in the context of the FLSA's regulatory scheme. Indeed, it is Helix's own position that if injected into that plan, would produce troubling outcomes, because it would deny overtime pay even to daily rate employees making far less money than Hewitt. Initially, Helix's complaint about windfalls for high earners fails in view of what this court has observed about the FLSA, 
Workers are not deprived of the benefits of the act simply because they are well paid. The Secretary of Labor has often reiterated that point, recognizing since the FLSA's enactment that Congress elected not to exempt all well-compensated workers. That statutory choice undergirds how the HCE rule works. The rule spells out when higher-income employees like Hewitt are exempt from the FLSA because they are bona fide executives, but so too it establishes when those workers are covered, in thus carving up the class of higher-income workers, the salary basis requirement is hardly unique. Another provision of the HCE rule states, for example, that various workers in maintenance, construction, and similar occupations are never exempt as executives, no matter how highly paid they might be. Throughout, the HCE rule reflects the statutory choice not to set a simple income level as the test for exemption. Some might have made a different choice, but that cannot affect what this court decides. Nor do Helix's operational and cost-based objections move the needle. Helix could come into compliance with the salary basis requirement for Hewitt and similar employees in either of two ways. It could add to Hewitt's per-day rate a weekly guarantee that satisfies Section 604B's conditions, or it could convert Hewitt's compensation to a straight weekly salary for time he spends on the rig. Helix protests that either option would make it pay for days Hewitt has not worked, but that is just to say that Helix wishes neither to pay employees a true salary, nor to pay them overtime. And the whole point of the salary basis requirement is to take that third option off the table, even though doing so may well increase costs. Of course, were that requirement novel, Helix's complaint about retroactive liability could have force. But as described above, the salary basis test, in largely the form it exists today, goes back to nearly the FLSA's beginnings, and the governing regulations, both Section 602A and Section 604B, make clear what the test means for a daily rate worker like Hewitt. Because he is not paid on a salary basis, he is entitled to overtime compensation. So as the Court of Appeals remarked, nothing about today's decision should come as a surprise. It is in fact Helix's position that would create disturbing consequences by depriving even workers at the heartland of FLSA's protection, those paid less than $100,000 annually, of overtime pay. The problem arises because, as explained above, Section 602A applies not only to the HCE rule, but also to the general rule 
exempting lower-earning employees as bona fide executives. And Section 602A must mean the same thing as applied to both rules. Not even Helix argues otherwise. So, on Helix's view, any daily rate employee who meets the general rules three-part duties test gets a paycheck no more frequently than every week and receives at least $455 per week, about $24,000 per year, is excluded from the FLSA's overtime protections. It is unclear how many and what kinds of employees are in that group, given the relative strictness of the general rules duties test. But, for example, two organizations representing nurses have filed amicus briefs here, and it is easy to see why. Some nurses working on a per-day or per-shift basis are likely to meet the general rules duties test, and their employers would assure them $455 per week in a heartbeat if doing so eliminated the need to pay overtime. And nurses, in the government's view, are not alone. They are just one of the many examples of workers paid less than $100,000 a year who would, if Helix prevailed, lose their entitlement to overtime compensation. That consequence, unlike the ones Helix raises, is difficult, if not impossible, to reconcile with the FLSA's design. Part 3 A daily rate employee like Hewitt is not paid on a salary basis under Section 602A of the Secretary's regulations. He may qualify as paid on salary only under Section 604B, Because Hewitt's compensation did not meet Section 604B's conditions, it could not count as a salary. So Hewitt was not exempt from the FLSA. Instead, he was eligible under that statute for overtime pay. We accordingly affirm the judgment below. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.